TNT area. Constructed during World War II, West Virginia Ordnance Works, as it was known in those days, was a sprawling 8,320-acre complex located just seven miles north of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, in Mason County. Its mission, to create and store munitions that would be used for the war effort. It is estimated that when it was completed in 1942, the plant cost $45 million to construct. In today's currency, that would translate to nearly $1 billion. At its peak, the plant employed 3,500 people and produced 720,000 pounds of TNT per day. The site consisted of power plants, storage facilities, dormitories, staff housing, medical buildings, and more. Essentially, they had constructed a self-contained city. But most unique of all was the maze of steel-reinforced concrete domed bunkers, or igloos, that were scattered throughout the dense forests and meandering waterways of the area. These structures were to store the explosives produced at the plant. To hide them from any possible aerial surveillance, these igloos were covered with dirt and grass was planted on top in an attempt to blend them seamlessly into the surrounding environment. But within three years, 1945, the war would come to an end and the factory would be decommissioned. The army would deed the site to the state of West Virginia on the stipulation it was to be used for wildlife management. And so it would come to pass, and the McClintic Wildlife Management Area would be born. The factory complex was abandoned and left a ghost town, soon to be reclaimed by nature. The buildings quickly fell into disrepair, once fueled by national pride, now left nothing more than crumbling ruins. And what of those 100 concrete igloos? Well, many were simply left to rot, their massive metal doors forever locked, rusting away on their hinges, and still hidden inside their terrible contents remained. Their secret and volatile forgotten hoard withered and decayed within, their poisons seeping into the earth. And it was here, on these forgotten roads, among these abandoned buildings, on this poisoned land, that four young friends would come face to face with the unknown and look directly into the eyes of a monster. History is rife with tales of the inexplicable and the unknown. Stories so bizarre, they send the fingers of doubt creeping into the recesses of our very minds. Join us as we investigate. This week in Creepy History.
Hi, I'm Laura Cram, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of the Creepy Acres Podcast, This Week in Creepy History. And with me, as always, is my funny co-host, Sam Squatch. No. Oh. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna be honest there for a second. I, I didn't know who you're gonna say. I was, I was very excited. I was like, "Oh my god, who is it?" And I kind of forgot. You're funny to me. You know what? Thank you. And I think you're pretty funny too. Ah, shucks. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes I gotta, I gotta admit, I kind of like having you around. Well, I'm grateful for you. But you know what? I'm thankful for you too. For a human, you're pretty okay. For a Bigfoot, I like you. Thanks. Hey, look at us. Look at us. Look at us getting along. Getting along. We're so sweet. I'm having a very good time. And I do also want to say I am thankful for you being, you know, the host of the show and allowing me to join you on here and speak my mind. Oh, stop. You're the star of the show. Oh, that's not true. Yes, it is. You know it. No, that is not true. I am the co-host. And How many autographs did you sign while we were out at the last festival? I don't like to sign my name because I feel like it's a way for the government to track me. So I don't do that. But. But what I do do is when they ask me for my name, I usually sign someone else's name. So right now there's a lot of people looking at things I sign going, when the hell did I meet Adam Scott? I was gonna say, who's Adam Scott? <laughs> That's what they're asking. Who the hell is Adam Scott? I don't know. When did I meet him? I thought you were gonna say like Bill Clinton or something. Oh God, no. I used to say <laughs> Paul Rudd, but then he got the whole Ant-Man deal and now everyone like knows who that guy is. Oh, Paul Rudd, he's good. So, you know who else I'm thankful for? Uh, I'm going to guess whoever came up with pumpkin spice. Ugh. I do not like pumpkin spice. Huh. Okay, so like, are you just talking about pumpkin spice or anything pumpkin flavored? Nothing pumpkin. Huh. I think it's gross. Pumpkin pie. Nope. Pumpkin bread. Nope. Pumpkin cupcakes. I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure they revoke any sort of suburban mom card if you start talking like that. Okay. <laughs> so you're going to want to be careful who hears this. All right. Did I just ruin our friendship? No. Are you done with me? Are you kicking me out? You know what? I'm I'm okay with pumpkin spice. I think it's all right. I mean, it's not going to be chocolate or vanilla. Vanilla is so plain. Yeah. But you know what? Sometimes it's pretty good. When it's like, you know what? I don't want anything complex. I want simple. Like, like tomato soup and a grilled cheese sandwich. It's just, you know what? I just need something to give me a hug. And sometimes vanilla is that hug, but never pumpkin spice. Pumpkin spice is a slap on the ass. And I didn't ask for that. <laughs> we are talking about that tall, dark, and handsome cryptid himself. Oh, oh well, thank you. This is this is such a surprise. With red eyes. Well, I mean, I don't know how red they are. Probably a little more pink, but you know, it's only because that, look, they legalized marijuana in Minnesota. It's like, at least try it, right? I mean, come on. And can fly. Oh, wait a minute. He's been seen in West Virginia. Oh. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, Richard Gere's best friend. What? We don't like him? Well, hey, you know what? Wait till some night when you wake up and he's staying at the foot of your bed because he doesn't like something you tweeted about him. The guy's a prick, okay? What did you tweet? Look, I'm just gonna say this. The guy was in one movie with Richard Gere a billion years ago. And now he acts like he's king shit. And if you're lucky, lucky, he'll flitter his ass down from Cocaine Mountain long enough to talk to you. Maybe. He's got that shiny hiney statue though. What do you got? Besides apparently bad taste in friends. You know what you got, Sam? Chlamydia. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'll be honest with you. Cryptids, we're like koala bears. We're lousy with this stuff, you know? But honestly, that's no surprise. Because if you think about it, if you're like a seven and a half foot tall lizard man, you know, your dating pool, probably pretty small. But do you know what you have that he doesn't have? No. This podcast. Oh, that's true. And you know what? You have a podcast. I have this podcast. And on this podcast, I could talk shit about him all goddamn day. 
because he doesn't listen to it. Deep breath. All right, let's turn it over to Nathaniel Leonard and he can tell us all about your favorite cryptid. The Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. It is a tale as bizarre as it is epic in scale, spanning not just over months, but years. A mysterious and inexplicable entity that would gleefully and spitefully forever blur the lines between cryptozoology, ufology, demonology, and parapsychology. A child to all, yet belonging to none. It is an enigma that brazenly struts before its witnesses while simultaneously refusing to be labeled and defying any efforts to categorize it. In fact, it is a tale so twisted that many disagree on just when and where it even began. The contenders for that crown are as varied as the sightings themselves. For many, the story of the Mothman begins on November 1st, 1966, with a sighting as brief as it was bizarre. An anonymous National Guardsman on duty at the Point Pleasant 1092nd Engineer Battalion Headquarters, located near Camp Conley Road, just north of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, was making his rounds, when suddenly he spotted some thing perched high in a tree near the fence. The man struggled to identify the creature as it was far too large to merely be a bird. This, this was something else. It looked more like a man. After some time, the guardsman simply gave up and left to fetch another member of his team to help him identify the creature. But by the time they returned, it was gone. Unfortunately, this tale has only one witness and no cooperation, which is why many believe that the tale of the Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia actually began two weeks later in the most unexpected of places, 80 miles away. November 12th, 1966. It is a warm Saturday afternoon, not a cloud in the sky, and Kenneth Duncan is hard at work, digging a grave. Not exactly the ideal way to spend the weekend before your 36th birthday. And to make matters worse, the grave is for his wife Ethel's father, Homer Smith. But Kenneth is not alone. He is joined this day by four other men, Robert, Bob, Lovejoy, William, Bill, Poole, Andrew Godby, and Emil Gibson. The five have gathered at the graveyard located on the grounds of the Reamer Hill Church, a small and simple house of worship overlooking the Elk River, just outside Clendenin, West Virginia. The men have been working for some time when Kenneth takes a break from his labor to admire the surrounding beauty and tranquility 
It will soon be his father-in-law's final resting place. After all, Smith's funeral services are scheduled for the very next day. As Kenneth surveys the peaceful calm about them, some thing suddenly catches his eye. Movement, a shape, is moving through the nearby trees. He can only gaze in wide-eyed wonder at what appears to be a man, or at least something shaped like a man. Mostly. For from its back sprouts two huge wings on which it glides effortlessly, weaving through the surrounding trees in utter silence. Kenneth's mind struggles to make sense of just what it is he is seeing, and then it is gone, vanished, like the whisper of a ghost. In his shock, Kenneth can only stare and fails to alert the others that are with him, leaving him only witness that day of the winged apparition. Kenneth would share his bizarre sighting with a few friends and most likely would have eventually forgotten the entire event if not for what was about to transpire. Kenneth Duncan had no way of knowing, but his life, his world, and that of numerous West Virginians was about to change forever. Just two days later, November 14th, 1966. It's a Tuesday night, and building contractor Merle Partridge, listed often as Newell Partridge, and his wife are sitting comfortably at home on a small 115-acre farm located along Pike Fork Road near Center Point, West Virginia. It's around 10 p.m., and the couple is engrossed NBC's Tuesday night at the movies, which, on this particular night, is showing the Tony Curtis, Christine Kaufman 1964 comedy, Wild and Wonderful. A little over an hour into their movie, the partridge's tranquility is shattered when their TV suddenly begins to make an eerie, high-pitched whine. One that Merle Partridge would compare to the noise of a generator winding up. The otherworldly sound grows louder and louder still, and soon it becomes utterly ear-piercing. Bandit, the family's three-year-old purebred German shepherd, becomes agitated and begins howling and carrying on out on the front porch. Merle jumps up to turn the TV off, the sound now crescendoing to an unbearable screaming whistle. And as he takes the few steps between him and the television, its picture tube suddenly and inexplicably explodes, showering the room in glass. Merle, his ears now ringing, rushes outside to clear his head and to check on Bandit, who is pacing about with teeth bared and hackles raised. Before the man can try to calm the 110-pound canine, it bolts from the front porch and races off toward a nearby field. Partridge repeatedly calls after the animal, but to no avail, and only then does he notice the two red lights. At first, they simply look like reflectors out in the field, in the direction Bandit was running. That is, 
until they begin to spin around and around, as if chasing one another. The man stares bewildered at the lights as they continue their mesmerizing dance, and slowly a growing sense of unease settles over him as the thought creeps into his mind that whatever he's looking at isn't natural. Unable to comprehend the unearthly display, the man retreats back into his home. The lights would eventually vanish, and apparently with them so too would Bandit. For the next morning, Merle would venture out into that very field, and there he would find a 50-foot circle of flattened grass, but no sign of the family dog. Only his tracks circling that flattened area of grass, around and around and around. Despite an exhaustive search, Merle is unable to find any sign of Bandit. Furthermore, he is also unable to find any dog tracks leaving that circle. It is as if Bandit was simply swallowed up by the night. But for many, there is no question when the story of the Mothman truly began. For them, it starts with the story that would bring the winged terror of Point Pleasant, West Virginia to international attention. November 15th, 1966. It's just before midnight, and Roger Scarberry, age 18, and his wife Linda Scarberry, 19, are out for a joyride. They are accompanied this night by another couple. Sitting in the back seat of the Scarberry's black 57 Chevy are their friends, Steve and Mary Millette. The four are out doing what young adults used to do late at night in small town America before the cell phone. They are simply out, cruising the back roads looking to see if any of their other friends are also out driving around. Inevitably, their path takes them to the maze of dark and secluded roads of the TNT area. Twenty years prior, during World War II, it had been a huge munitions factory. However, now it sat abandoned, a sprawling, empty husk, haunted by shadows and crumbling reminders of ages past. But now, in 1966, it had become a popular destination for the youth of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The long, straight stretches of empty road were perfect for drag racing, and further back, under the shadows of the tall trees, young lovers could hide away from prying eyes. But on this night, the Scarberries and Millettes would find the roadways empty, and the isolated houses that dotted the area were dark. It was now midnight, and the two couples had given up any hope of finding anyone else out here in these darkened roads. So, Roger had turned his car around and was beginning the long drive back to Point Pleasant. And as the Scarberry's car crested a small hill near the old power plant, the two couples were greeted by the sight 
of something standing in the middle of the road. Oh, God. What is that? As the four peered out into the darkened night, they were at first perplexed and then horrified by the inhuman form standing there before them. It was grayish in color, stood six to seven feet tall, and from its back sprouted two huge bat-like wings. But it was the eyes. The eyes would haunt them forever. Two inches round, six inches apart, and glowing red. What is that? The creature quickly shuffled out of the road and waddled toward the open door of the power plant. It was moving quickly, but couldn't seem to keep its balance, as if it wasn't accustomed to walking. And then, their awe gave way to terror. Let's get out of here! Let's and go! with that, go! Roger go, go! hit the gas. The engine of his 57 Chevy roared to life, and down the dark, narrow roads they flew. Roger cranked the wheel, swinging them onto Route 62. The car now up on two wheels as it took the turn. The Scarberry's car hurtled south, heading directly for Point Pleasant. And as they reached the first bend in the road, the four were met by a ghastly sight. Help! There, ahead of them, was the creature, or a similar us? one, Help! standing on a hill. And as the Chevy's headlights hit it, the being spread its wings and seemed to shoot straight up into the night sky. Now, the teens were in a full panic. Roger was pushing his car faster and faster. 90, 95, 100, 105 miles per hour. And faster and faster they went. I'm trying, I'm trying! The mallets, looking out the back window, could see the creature. It was following them, gaining on them. But it wasn't even flapping its wings. Despite Roger pushing the vehicle to its limits, the winged nightmare was soon directly over them. Gliding back and forth, inspecting them, or perhaps it was toying with them. Either way, as the car reached the lights of Point Pleasant, the creature simply vanished. Where is it? Where did it go? Leaving the quartet to enter the town alone. Roger would notice that during the chase, the creature seemed to avoid the front of his car and his headlights. He would state that he thought it appeared afraid of the light. And while it is easy to focus solely on the physical appearance of the Mothman, its wings, its eyes, what is often forgotten was that Mrs. Mary Millette, one of the passengers in the back seat, would also give us our first description of what it sounded like. I could hear it making this sound. It, it squeaked like a big mouse. What happened next was a blur, but the Scarberries and the Millettes would soon find themselves at the Mason County Courthouse, where they would report their encounter to Deputy Millard Halstead. I knew these kids their whole lives, and they were never in any trouble, so I took them serious. Accompanied by the police, the two couples would return to the T&T area, and ultimately they would find nothing. 
Within hours, the story of the Mallets and the Scarberries encounter would hit the local newspapers, and as the story reached the public, others, such as Kevin Duncan and the anonymous National Guardsman, would come forward. In fact, there was one detail given by Roger Scarberry, the driver, that would catch the attention of Merle Partridge, who had lost his dog Bandit only days earlier. Funny thing, we all noticed this big, big dead dog on the side of the road, but when we came back a few minutes later, the dog was gone. And as terrifying as their encounter was, it would pale in comparison to what would happen next. For not even 24 hours later, the creature that would eventually be known as the Mothman would return. November 16th, 1966. It's around 9 p.m., and Mrs. Marcella Bennett, age 21, and her brother Raymond Walmsley, age 19, are out in the sparsely populated TNT area visiting the home of their sister, Mrs. Virginia Thomas. However, they soon discover that Virginia and her husband Ralph had not yet returned home from Wednesday night service at their church. So, after visiting with their nieces and nephews for a short while, Marcella and Raymond had decided to go home. However, they weren't alone. Joining them this night was Marcella's two-year-old daughter, Tina, and Raymond's wife, Kathy. As the four leave the Thomas house, Raymond and Kathy stop on the stairs, transfixed by a light in the night sky. What is that? Marcella, meanwhile, continues to carry her daughter to the car. That light, up there, see? Raymond begins to try to get his sister's attention, hey. hoping she will acknowledge hey. the brilliant beacon in the sky. You seeing that? But Marcella simply ignores her brother hey. and continues toward her vehicle. Raymond and Kathy were still struggling to identify the strange light in the darkened sky when Marcella reached the passenger door of her car. She was carrying her daughter in her right arm and her keys in her left hand, and as she struggled to open the car door, she suddenly noticed something standing next to her. The creature had risen up from behind the car and was now standing only three feet away. Marcella took no notice of its feet, but instead, what caught her eye was what she thought were human legs covered in grayish khaki. Instantly, she realized what she was staring at were feathers. Its arms were wings, and the head was sunken down between its shoulders like a bird. But this was no bird, nor was it a man. She was staring into the face of an inhuman monster. Marcella turned around, but after only three or four steps, she heard the flapping of wings behind her and instantly crumpled to the ground, collapsing on top of her crying child. Her legs had simply frozen in fear. Now, Raymond and his wife, seeing what had just happened, had begun shouting, screaming to Marcella. Marcella fought back the fear, scrambled to her feet, grabbed her daughter Tina, and rushed back to her brother and sister-in-law who were still waiting by the steps. Her knees were badly skinned, 
and she was bleeding from a wound on the side of her face. The four retreated back into the house and locked the doors. Raymond promptly called the police. Then they heard it. The unmistakable creak of the wood floorboards on the porch. Raymond turned, and there it was, staring through the front window at them. It had followed them up to the house. It began to walk back and forth on the porch, occasionally looking in at the terrified residents. And then, to their everlasting horror, it started to push against the door. It was trying to get in. The house was now chaos. Marcella was in shock, bleeding from a wound on her head. Tina was crying. Their nieces and nephews were terrified. Meanwhile, Raymond and Kathy were desperately trying to figure out exactly what it was pushing against the front door, for it was neither bird nor man, but something in between. And then it happened. Instantly, the front yard was filled with police. But inexplicably, the creature was gone. But the damage was done. Marcella Bennett had stood no less than three feet from the winged horror, staring at it face to face. And while she would have no memory of glowing red eyes, the events of that night would still haunt her for years to come. Traumatized by the encounter and tormented by endless nightmares, Marcella would swear she could hear its wings outside her home at night, its footsteps on the roof. She would become convinced that the horror known as the Mothman was stalking her, hunting her. Such was the price for staring too long into the abyss. Mary Heyer a reporter for the Athens Messenger, where she wrote the newspaper column Where the Waters Mingle, would take on the enormous task of covering the numerous Mothman sightings as well as the other bizarre and strange happenings about town. However, she would not be alone in this mission. Others, such as authors Gray Barker and John Keel, would also soon find themselves catapulted into the fray. And it was through the work of people like them stories such as these would live on. Sadly, while people may never agree on exactly when the story of the Mothman truly began, we do know when it ended for many. 4.58 p.m. December 15th, 1967. It was a Friday, and rush hour traffic in Point Pleasant was at a standstill. The traffic lights downtown had malfunctioned, and cars and trucks were backed up, bumper to bumper, across the Silver Bridge, which stretched over the Ohio River, connecting Point Pleasant, West Virginia, to Gallipolis, Ohio. Many were simply getting off work while others were just finishing their shopping for Christmas, when suddenly, there was a loud noise. The bridge gave a shudder. 
And then, the entirety of the 2,200-foot-long silver bridge simply came apart, collapsing into the freezing waters of the Ohio River, waiting 30 feet below. In all, 46 people would lose their lives. Point Pleasant, West Virginia was a small town, barely 5,500 citizens, and 46 had just died in an instant. Everyone in town knew someone who had perished that day. It was the deadliest bridge disaster in modern history. For many, this, this is the day the story of the Mothman ends. And for some, it is the day that solidified the idea that Mothman was a harbinger of doom. In the end, over 100 witness reports will be documented about the bizarre and unearthly entity known as the Mothman. It would frequent the TNT area, and it would be sighted on roofs, in trees, and in even one case, it was claimed to have appeared in a man's bedroom. And with these reports would come utterly mind-bending tales of paranoia, premonition, poltergeist activity, animal mutilations, and stranger things still. But those, those are tales for another day. I hate to admit, that's pretty exciting. That's pretty cool. Okay, so after hearing Nathaniel Leonard's yes. tell us that story, yes. or stories, I should say, yes. do you still have a beef with the Mothman, Sam? Has that changed your mind? You know what? You know what? Here's what I'm going to say. That the important thing of that story to me is not Mothman. Is it Bandit? I care a little bit about Bandit. A little? He's a dog. Come on. Yeah, and I'm sure Mothman found him very tasty. I don't know. The point is this. What I'm trying to tell you is this. Okay. Okay, now hear me out. Hear me out. All right. Listening to this, I went way down a rabbit hole. All right? And and, and it started getting the gears turning. Okay? Now, I don't want to sound like a lunatic here, but just hear me out. All right. Now, you know that very famous photo of the mullets and the scarberries, right? The, the black and white. Black and white, white yeah. picture of them all standing there. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, where they, like, it's, the, it's the four of them standing there. It was the one that they put yeah, in the newspaper. Yeah, I got it up. We got to make sure we put this in the show notes because everyone needs to see this. Okay? I will. All right. So you see that photo, right? The four of them just standing there, right? Right. Yes. Now, I'm looking. Hear me out. L- listen to me. Shaggy, Daphne, Fred, and Velma. <laughs> it's Scooby Doo. It's freaking Scooby Doo. I mean, look at look. It's right there. It's right there. They're just missing Scooby. Oh, are they? Because I think Bandit would like to have a word. Ah, uh, but that dog. And besides the fact one's got the big glasses that looks just like Velma's glasses, okay? Now take that aside, all right? Take that aside. 
Okay, now, look at it like this. You got four young adults, two boys, two girls, going around like abandoned buildings and stuff, okay? Driving around and discovering what? Monsters, okay? I mean, come on, mm -hmm. it's right there. I can, okay, I'm looking at this picture. Yes, I can see what you're talking about. Okay, now, if that's not bad enough, things are about to get worse, okay? We're gonna keep going down this rabbit hole, all right? Because check this out. The original iteration, all right? The, when they were first putting the show together, the character of Velma, her original name, was Linda, like Linda Scarberry, okay? Dun, dun, dun. Now, 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 now I, I know what you're thinking. You think that's just one out of four, big whoop. Uh-huh. You know, whatever. Where's Steve, okay? Where's Where's Mary, all right? Where's Roger? You know, one out of four, you got Linda, yay, okay, whatever. And the thing is, I probably would agree with you. I probably would. Except for the fact that Shaggy's last name is Rogers. Zoinks! Oh my God, it's right there, man. It's right there! Oh my God, oh my God. So close. So, the Hanna-Barbera cartoon, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You, goes into development just a little over like a year and a half after the events of November 15th, 1966, when the Mullets and the Scarberries see an unknown monster outside of an abandoned building in the middle of goddamn nowhere, all right? I am telling you right now that Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, the creators of Scooby-Doo, saw this news story, okay? It was national news at the time, filed it away in the back of their head, and then, Pulled it out to make this cartoon. And I am telling you right now, <laughs> Mothman is not a harbinger of doom. He is a harbinger of doo. Scooby-Doo. <laughs> and Scrappy. Now I feel like you're making fun of me. <laughs> <I know. laughs> I'm sorry. Did you for real just drop into the middle of my pristine, perfect theory? Goddamn Scrappy-Doo. I had to. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, oh I'm going to need a minute to get the taste out of my mouth. Ugh. Okay, I like this. I like where you're going with this. I feel like Hanna-Barbera owes those families a shit ton of money. You should do something about it. I can't. I do not have a legal degree. <laughs> but, but I'm bringing awareness, and that's a thing, right? That counts for something, right? I like it. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think it should count for something. Mm -hmm. You know who we should ask is our guest tonight. <gasps> Who's our guest? It is our dear friend <clears throat> and Mothman expert, Steve Ward. Yes! Oh my God, I love that man. Me too. You know, he is a national treasure. Maybe international. Uh, you know what? I forgot. He's on Mac Maloney's uh, Military X-Files, and that's like an international audience. So yeah, yeah, you're right. Let's talk to him. Hold on. I'm Hold on, hold on, before you bring him on. Before you bring him on. I'm gonna be on my best behavior. I'm not gonna mention my beef with Mothman, even though I hate him so much. I hate him so much. Calm down. But, but for you and for him, I'm gonna pretend I don't even know that son of a bitch. Yes, thank you. All right, let's talk to Steve. Okay. So Steve, how are you? I'm really good. How are you guys? Great. Doing great. Uh, nice nice to be on the show. Yes, thank you so much for being on. So why don't you tell everyone about yourself? Okay, many years ago, I was in junior high in Michigan, but we had a, uh, <laughs> we started our own UFO group. And you know, we weren't gonna be called a flying saucer group because that was so passe, flying saucer. So we, it was gonna be aerial phenomena. And originally it was aerial phenomena research and investigation center. 
Now, if you sound that out, it's not very complimentary, and we won't want to do that since this is a family show. Yeah, you have not met my family. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we switched the I and the R around, and we were in business. And uh, two of us, Evan and Rick, did a, a published kind of a, a pretty decent amateur UFO publication. And we had a wave of UFO sightings well, in the Midwest, but also in Michigan. These are the ones where Dr. J. Allen Hynek... Uh, Steve, just a second. Uh, just a quick quick question here. Now, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, now that's like the, the Project Blue Book guy, right? Now, now what's, his, what's his deal? Yes, he was an astronomer at Northwestern University. It was actually dispatched from Project Blue Book. This is back when he was still attached to the Air Force. Now, Hynek had... Uh, had begun to believe that there was uh, something to this. He was very skeptical at first, and uh, but he was still tied to the Air Force, so he had to kind of do that dance. You know, he was still those apron strings were still tied there. They wanted him to kind of diffuse the situation, even though uh, it was actually Senator then Gerald Ford that got mad at the Air Force for not you know doing anything about these sightings because a lot of very credible people were were seeing these metallic objects and landings and so forth around the Dexter Ann Arbor and uh, Hillsdale area i mean pretty cool having aliens landing in your backyard virtually you know uh, i remember the press conference where Heinick uttered the classic phrase suggesting that some of the sightings might be swamp gas and of course, that's all the press needed. The answer to the UFO mystery was marsh gas. And uh, the following November, uh, 1966, was, uh, well, the first major sighting of the Mothman. Not the first sighting, but the one where it chased the two couples down Route 62. And uh, so that's that's really kind of how it all started for me. Oh, very cool. Okay, guys. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. This This story. I mean, this is like a scab you can't stop picking it. It just goes on and on and right. on. I have, <laughs> I, look, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm going to be, we, we obviously can't do everything, okay? Because there's so much. It's, there's so much. So <laughs> where the hell, where do we even start with this? Okay, so let's just get right into this. Let's start off with the grave digger. Uh, Clint Denning, there were uh, some grave diggers in, at the cemetery there. And they saw some kind of like a man bird thing fly overhead. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was a very brief sighting. Um, it, it has to be creepy as hell digging a grave and seeing this thing, this whatever it was, uh, apparition or humanoid. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was a few days before the really big sighting. Um, isn't there a story about a dog missing? A band? What is was, was it? Bandit? Yes. Yeah, so. Merle Partridge, uh, his dog Bandit. Now, uh, there, there's a couple things wrong in the Mothman prophecies. And I, I suspect, I, I mean, the book, uh, I, I suspect uh, Keel always talked about these faceless editors that were always uh, getting things wrong. But in the book, it suggests that uh, Partridge saw the Mothman and Bandit went out and was running circles and, uh, and then disappeared. He couldn't find him the next day. But what Partridge actually saw were, were spinning lights. It was suggested that that was something more mechanical or whatever was going on there. In the book, it was uh, in one of the uh, earlier articles where John Keel talks about this, it's reported accurately. But in the book, it's changed a little bit. So I, I don't know what to think about that. But apparently uh, uh, that it all happened at the same time. But I'm not sure we can blame the disappearance of the dog on, on the Mothman. 
Okay, so then, like, pretty much that same day, really, is the big sighting, the, the one that everyone always remembers, the one where the, the two couples in the car. Mm-hmm. Now, is that the um, the Scarberries and the, is it the Mallets? Uh The Scarberries and the Mallets. They were out, uh, they're two married couples. They were driving around uh, the TNT area, which is about nine miles north of Point Pleasant. Now, it's been nicknamed the TNT area forever because back uh, during World War II, it was uh, an area that was a huge complex, and you can check out the old black and white photographs. And they uh, they created explosives, TNT, for the war effort. They stored them in a hundred of these bunkers or concrete igloos, as they call them. And uh, <clears throat> so, but but by the 1960s, it was uh, it was abandoned. Uh, the old North Power Plant was still standing, um, and the Scarberries and the Mallets were driving on the dirt road by that. And Linda saw what she thought was a man standing in the middle of the road. And she 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 said, what's, what's that man doing there? Well, that man suddenly spread his wings, a 10-foot wingspan. They noticed that it had red glowing eyes. It was vaguely humanoid. And it kind of shuffled off toward the old North Power Plant. And they got the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, <laughs> As they, they zipped on, it would, it would have been going uh, west on Potter's Creek Road. And then south on Route 62, which goes back into Point Pleasant. There was a billboard sign right there, and they saw it standing there. Now, they don't know if it was the mm-hmm. same one or that they just flew over there very quickly or if it was another one, you know. But but this thing chased them into town, flying right over their car. They uh, they went to the police uh, station, and they, they were separated, and they all wrote out their, their stories, which all matched. And that particular sighting went all over the world, it hit the wire services all over the world. So when I was in... In junior high and high school, in, in, in junior high school, I was reading this in the newspaper. I mean, it hit the uh, um, the military newspaper as well, Stars and Stripes. And this is even before Mothman had a proper name. Uh, there is, we don't know who, <laughs> we don't know who dubbed this thing Mothman. Some very creative copy editor. The Batman TV show was very popular at the time, so I'm sure it was just a play on Batman. But this, whatever this was, really didn't have much to do with a moth. Okay, now hold on. So now this part of the story, when the mallets, the mallets and the scarberries are heading into town. Now, is there any truth to the story where they say that they um, they saw a, a, a big dead dog on the side of the road and that um, uh, uh, Partridge thought uh, read that in the paper and thought it was his dog? Yes, yes, there was a, there was a was a bandit. Yeah, well, we don't know. I mean, that Partridge was uh, was quite a distance away. I don't. I don't know that we can conclude that the d- dead dog they saw was Bandit, but but who knows? There was another. You know, if you go across the river to Gallipolis and you go a little bit north, there's a a, a road called George's Creek Road. There was kind of a saucer nest, a, a landing or something, uh, and it, it 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 actually crushed part of it. So there were several several dogs that were harmed during that period. So 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 hold on just a second. It crushed yeah. a what? A dog. They found a dead dog. Oh, my God. Ew. And this thing, you know, you, you've heard of uh, saucer nests and that sort of thing. Uh, nobody actually saw anything land there, but there was this circular depressed area, like a like a little, like a crop circle. That's horrifying. Good Lord. And and apparently there were uh, animal mutilations in the area, too. I mean, you had you had strange lights going overhead all the time. You had the, the visits from the men in black. You had missing time. You, it was a, a three-ring circus of the paranormal. But with a dead dog. 
Oh my God! Easy there, you ghoul. <laughs> All right. So 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 Steve. Now okay. Now these stories are hitting one after another. Boom 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 boom. So we're already now the next night. It, it's back again, right? Now this is this is the um the Wamsley case, right? It, this is not even twenty four hours later. <laughs> yes, yes. There was a there was a it was Marcella Bennett that went out there with her brother. It was uh I guess it was the uh the Wamsley family that had a house there in the TNT area. And they heard about the Mothman and thought it was a big joke. So they were going to go out there and, and try to scare them by tapping on their window. And the parents weren't home. Uh, just the kids were. So they, they started to head back to the car. And uh, her, her brother was trying to get her attention. There was some kind of a strange light up in the sky. And she just didn't want to pay any attention to it. Then all of a sudden, this thing rose up off the ground, which apparently was the Mothman. She was stunned. She, she collapsed and actually fell on her infant child which turned out to be okay, but she, she couldn't get her legs running at first. So they ran back to the house. They hid in the house. This thing came up and walked back and forth on the porch. And, of course, they called the police. And by the time the police got there, it was gone. You can actually walk out. Uh, if you uh, go north on Route 62, make a, a right on Potter's Creek Road and go to the first Igloo Road to the north, and you, you walk a little way back there to a clearing, you can find the area where that house used to stand, but there's not even a, a foundation there anymore. I mean, look, I like I know birds well enough to know that even if it's a, some sort of big bird, like a crane or whatever, and it rises up, it's not going to, and you freak out, it's not going to follow you up to the I mean, you know what I mean? It's not like a dog. Right. It's not going to follow you up to the, up to your porch and start walking back and forth. <laughs> no, no. And uh, it's going to flap its wings when it yeah. flies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause well, I was going to say, so at that time, I mean, yeah, you had the sighting of this this creature, the Mothman, which, you know, as you said, a, a lot of the early reports just sort of it sounded like a like an owl or like a just a big bird of some, some sort. But then you had all this other stuff going on. I mean, you had like, I mean, because there was stuff going on long before the creature ever showed up. I mean, wasn't there wasn't there like UFO sighting? I mean, that was just like a it was just like an endless buffet of, of craziness. It, it, yes. And uh, I, I wish I could have been there at that time to see, at least, you know, witness some of the stuff. If you go back around World War One, there is a uh, book by James Gay Jones called uh, Haunted Haunted Valley, I think. And he talks about sightings of some kind of like a bird man uh, around World War One, uh, kind of a little bit further north, maybe uh, along the Elk River area. And uh, but not terribly far from uh, Point Pleasant, and uh, these these uh, was they had like a twelve foot wingspan, kind of a red plumage, uh, human looking heads, and they would keep their children in <laughs> for for fear that they might come down. And I don't know how long the wave lasted. There's not much information on it. But yeah, there were other sightings that you could call it the Mothman uh, uh, prior to the November of 1966. Um, another interesting thing, which is probably pure coincidence. Um, you know, we, the, of course, the uh, a lot of the Mothman stuff uh, uh, culminated with the uh, collapse of the Silver Bridge in the area. Um, but in 1904, of course, this is before this other this earlier wave of sightings, the Elk River Bridge collapsed. And uh, the only interesting thing about it is both the Elk River Bridge and the Silver Bridge occurred on December 15th. Oh, oh my God. Pure coincidence, I imagine. Is but, it though? I mean, is it is it coincidence? Feels a little suspect. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. But but very strange nonetheless. So 
Uh, it just there's so many so many rabbit holes you can go down here, and you come right back to the beginning where I just don't know what the hell is going on. But I, I think we have made some progress because uh, you know back in the in the olden days things were completely separate. We had uh, people coming from other planets. We had Bigfoot and different kinds of cryptids. But boy, when you look at uh, uh, Stan Gordon's research into Pennsylvania, 73, 74, in Silent Invasion, and a wave of bizarre Bigfoot reports along with strange lights in the sky, it uh, it tends to, uh, you know, it, it just really kind of gums up the works. You know, you, uh, they, they were, uh, some cases where Bigfoot was shot, point blank, would disappear in a flash of light. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back to 1897, uh, that's when the, uh, these sightings of these majestic airships would show up and there was a, a a wave of them or at least one of them was making kind of a circuit around ohio between mid-april and mid-may and uh, was even lapsed over into sistersville west virginia well at that same time period on the ground people were seeing these large black panthers like around chillicothe and they were attacking dogs and so forth never trapped never shot and also at the same time in adams county home of the uh Serpent Mound, people were seeing something they were calling a wild man, which we know is just another name for a Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. So in, in two cases, you have what appears to be some kind of technology in advance of us. Uh, but on the ground, you get these cryptid reports. And you can say the same thing about Lee Hample's farm right near Elkhorn, Wisconsin. You know, he's uh, uh, he has taken... Uh, uh, thousands of photographs of the bizarre things going on around his property. You see these things like drones and things in the sky, and then you get these weird footprints that begin and end nowhere. And he's captured like parts of what appear to be some kind of a dogman-like creature. So you've got these beasts that act like beasts. They eat bait and roadkill, but then on the, in the in the as a backdrop, you seem to have some kind of technology. And this is something that seems to show up over and over again. Lee's evidence of his farm is incredible. I was lucky enough to stay there on the farm. I got to look through his photo albums. You know, I was looking at the cast that he had made. I mean, just, I can't even explain it. And like, I'm very skeptical, but I don't, there's something weird going on there. It's strange. You see the uh, footprints, uh, five toed Mm -hmm. footprints start nowhere in the snow split as if two creatures have split apart and then they disappear and then just stop yeah they just stop um and then he had uh there's been several roadkill deer that he has Mm -hmm. pulled onto his property and uh, maybe a dozen cases and he has the camera trained on it Mm -hmm. and then a mist shows up at some point you can see the time stamp yeah white mist and then the carcass is gone it's gone no drag marks no footprints it's insane Okay, now now is when we're starting to get into the really weird stuff, right? Okay, this is where we start getting into the inexplicable things, you know, like where you like uh, what they call high strangeness, you know. Um, so so how does John Keel, uh, the the author of the Mothman prophecies, and arguably the the reason so many people know about the Mothman, um, like and and why we ended up with a movie and stuff, like how does he fit into all this? Because he's not from there. So, like, what 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 happened? Yeah, so uh, John Keel was actually uh, uh, somewhere in West Virginia. He was trying to track down an old story about Thomas the Cat. Thomas the Cat apparently had wings, 
and this boy would uh, uh, would would let people see him for ten cents. We'd bring him out in a shoebox and then open it up, and it it was kind of a big fiasco because the one woman said Thomas was her cat, and Thomas was a girl, and apparently the, the wings or whatever it was fell off, and there were these two little uh, bumps on the on the cat. So anyway, he's trying to track this down. He's talking to Gray Barker, Gray Barker, who is the uh, 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 published uh, had Cesarean publications. Um, uh, he's the, the first guy to uh, investigate the Flatwood monster sighting and so forth. Well, Barker's telling him about this Mothman story. And he said, no, there's really something to it. So Keel went, he, he met, uh, uh, he, he went to the police department to introduce himself. And then he was, uh, went to the Dewey's house and they called uh, several other witnesses. So that it was uh, early December, I believe, he was able to talk to several of the primary witnesses that had started seeing this thing and getting uh, detailed reports. Over, he, he came down from, he was based in New York, a journalist, and he came down five times uh, during that year, November 66 to December 67, and uh, talked to a little over 100 people. And the interesting thing is that the, the general descriptions were about the same, although some people just saw what looked like a large bird. But the behavior of this thing was odd. It didn't always flap its wings. It did seem to leave some kind of footprints at the, at the uh, old North Power Plant that Keel found. Um, it, uh, uh, a lot of people that saw it, they would go home afterwards and they would have an outbreak of poltergeist phenomenon, which is, is something that happens in sometimes UFO sightings. Um, there was uh, 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 a couple people that went into a trance. There was a, uh, a banker, heard something. He came out on his front porch. He saw this thing standing there. And uh, he went to, went to a trance for somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes. He came out of it and the thing flew away. A, uh, a, a lady. Was this all in Point Pleasant or just all around the area? That this was, uh, this is, uh, these, uh, these were sightings in Point Pleasant, but okay. it was also seen throughout the Ohio Valley and Pennsylvania and so forth. <clears throat> okay. And then uh, Linda Sigmund, who uh, has re recently published a book, I think it's called In the Pale Moonlight. Uh, she was 16 when she saw this thing, this apparition or creature. And uh, it was April of 1967. And she was out with her boyfriend about 12 miles north of Point Pleasant. And uh, they they saw this, this thing in conjunction with a couple of strange lights, like giant orbs floating around. And she also had missing time. Oh, so it's very interesting that these creatures. And if you guys remember the Van Meter Visitor, that other winged creature that didn't really look like the Mothman, uh, there was a guy that kind of went into a trance and lost time mm -hmm. when he saw this thing as well. So you want there's some you know interesting patterns that, that could be there. Um, uh, oh, gee, what else? Oh, uh, there was a, a lady um, named uh, Connie Carpenter, and uh, she was uh, very early on. She saw this thing when she went by the Mason County golf course and uh, it, uh, it, it, it took off straight like a helicopter, didn't flap its wings, flew over her car. She said its face was science fiction like she couldn't quite describe it. The next day she was suffering conjunctivitis, eye burn, which mm -hmm. is often associated with, uh, you know, uh, people that have close sightings of UFOs and right. so forth. So John Keel, he began to, not care that much about what the 
in quotes spaceship looked like you know how many doors it had or, or windows and what the shape was he wasn't all that concerned about what the creature looked like he wanted to understand the cosmic mechanism behind these things because he thought these things may may be paraphysical they might be temporal and uh, he used the great word transmogrification of energy and uh which you know and it's it's uh always difficult to uh to condense Keel in a few paragraphs and his ideas. Right. But uh it's just very, you know, that's that when when people ask me, uh, you know, what what was the Mothman? You know, I was on uh uh Morgan Knudsen's show, uh Supernatural Circumstances. I love Morgan. With uh with the infamous Chad Lewis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the photobomb guy. Yeah, the photobomb guy. <laughs> um and uh she asked me, but what was the Mothman? And I usually, my, my stock answer usually is, and I'll go through the mm-hmm. litany of all the, the different ways. You know, it, it even manifested in a bedroom one time, like like an apparition, <laughs> and then and then disappeared. Uh, so I would, I would go through all that. But this time I said, <laughs> out of my mouth came, Mothman was an elemental. And, I you know, uh, John Keel used the term ultra-terrestrial. He borrowed it from Ivan Sanderson. Ivan Sanderson, his friend and colleague, uh, the great British naturalist, uh, mm. transplanted to New Jersey, probably best known for the abominable snowman, Legend Come to Life. But he wrote other great books on UFOs and the on the unexplained. Um, so, uh, but so ultra-terrestrial was just sort of a, a means of mm. suggesting that whatever is going on, he thought was a natural condition of the planet. You didn't have to go off world to explain some of these things, perhaps extra dimensional, uh, but they, uh, but he would use the, the term ultra terrestrial and elemental interchangeably uh, a lot. So the more I, th- I think about it, it, it's almost like, and I'm not sure I can give a, a, a great definition of what an elemental is, but the, this, whatever it was, uh, sometimes it acted like it perhaps was physical. Other times it acted like it was uh, an apparition or, or temporal or paraphysical. Although, you know, it's very interesting if you uh, uh, go back to uh, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who we all know wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories. Well, he was a he was a paranormal investigator in his day. He wrote a book called The Coming of the Fairies, and he firmly believed that these things were real creatures. But it's very interesting. He said something very keel like he said, the appearance of the fairies are largely dependent on the person viewing them. And that's kind of where Kegel was coming from, that we, we may co-create some of these things. Now, it's it's very likely, very possible that that some of these, uh, I mean, there's, there's more than one answer for these things. We may very well be visited by aliens from other planets, so it may explain some of this. But some of it is almost like, uh, if you, uh, are you guys familiar with the uh, Forbidden Planet? The, the great 1950s science fiction movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. The, the, the MacGuffin was the uh, this Krell race had uh, developed a this technology where they could manifest thoughts. And what they, what they forgot about were monsters from the id, the deep inner subconscious, uh, that the monsters they created from the id destroyed their civilization. So it's almost like, you know, some of these things there does seem to be kind of a negative side to, to some of this, but there there is positive and negative. I mean, people experience healings uh, and, and that sort of thing. There, there's so many ways to go. It's never ending. 
I mean, my God, this 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 is such a rabbit hole. You know, there's a whole other aspect to uh, the Mothman thing when uh, the prophecies part is uh, is very interesting because uh, uh, as as the book goes on, it's not just a matter of UFO sightings and Mothman sightings. That he uh, he was talking to a lot of people that firmly believed they were in contact with some other intelligence. You know, some of these suggest that they maybe they were actually meeting some kind of a, a entity. Others seem like it might be more in the way of channeling or something like that. But uh, he called these people silent contactees because they, well, they firmly believed that they were in contact with whatever. That sometimes they were given prophecies that would come true. Uh, and you saw that aspect in the movie. Um, they They were not the least bit interested in any publicity or or whatever. They didn't care if anybody believed them or not. Quite a few of these people were having, uh, well, get, well, getting these predictions, and they would often come true. The thing is that uh, in, in so many of these cases, um, they would, it was almost like the the trust of the contactee was, was, uh, was earned, was gained, and then all of a sudden it would go off the rails. A lot of these predictions started to coalesce, um, and there was a uh, again, the movie did capture some things. They were uh, Keel was very afraid there was going to be some kind of a tragedy on the river. He thought a chemical plant was going to blow up. And uh, Mary Heyer, the uh, reporter he worked with, friend and colleague, she's the one that wrote the column, Where the Waters Mingle. And uh, she reported on UFOs, the, the Mothman, the Men in Black. Uh, she was having uh, dreams, uh, along with was another woman, a Mrs. Thomas, Mrs. Thomason. Uh, about packages floating on the water. Another thing that mm. they talked about in the movie. And so th there was just the real feeling of foreboding. And as time went on, uh, they were the uh, several of these contactees were telling John Keel, and Keel was becoming, by his own admission, extremely paranoid, uh, because a lot of these these predictions would come true. Uh, they were saying that uh, there was going to be this 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 big event this EM effect, whatever that was. And then it was going to be on December 15th. And it was going to happen the moment that President Johnson lit the Christmas tree on the White House lawn. And it was going to be, I forget the exact deal, maybe three days of darkness and, and just all kinds of terrible wow. things. Well, by that time, Keel said he bought it hook, line, and sinker. He was in his apartment in New York and uh, with bottles of water. And President Johnson lit the Christmas tree and nothing happened. And then shortly after, the blurb came on the radio about the bridge between Point Pleasant and Ohio had collapsed. And he was furious because it's like these messages, you know, it, it, was it uh, an intentional misdirection? Was it just that people can't receive these messages properly? I don't know. Uh, so, so Steve, just to back up for one second here, I just want to make sure I got this. So what you're saying is that John Keel, believed because of all of his sources and his contactees and all these people that he was talking to that all of his sources he through all that he had interpreted what they were telling him was that on december 15th as the president flipped the switch to 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 illuminate the christmas tree for the first time that as he did that something was going to happen okay some massive power outage of some sort now, was that going to be like the entire country or was it going to be just the East Coast? Because now, I mean, honest to God, over the years, I have heard of 
uh, both ways at this point. Well, there was it was going to be uh, I forget there were gonna, it was going to be a power failure, and uh, I think maybe across the nation or whatever. I don't remember the exact details, but but so many things had you know like plane crashes and things like that had come true. He was he was ready. He thought that uh, that was it. And then when this other thing happened, he was furious because you know what what, what good is a harbinger if it can't tell you what's going to happen. I mean, if Mothman was a harbinger and all he's doing is chasing cars, you know, I'll pass on that. I want a, I want a real message. I want, you know, some a real vision so that people can avoid the tragedy. Uh, okay, just a second, just a second. Now, now I don't want to be the one to defend the Mothman here, all right? But I'm going to for just a second, all right? And, and, and what I mean by that is, in a way, the prediction did kind of come true. I mean, to quote Obi-Wan Kenobi. From a certain point of view, all right? And what I mean by that is simply this. Now, John Keel knew there was going to be a massive tragedy on the Ohio River. Now, he got that right, right out of the gate. He knew that, okay? Where things get fouled up is that he kind of got, it got muddled in the details, you know? So, so he started on the right path, and then somewhere along the line, started following the wrong breadcrumbs, you know what I'm saying? Okay. So and what I mean by that, what I mean is simply this. There was a massive tragedy on the Ohio River and a lot of people died. And it was mm -hmm. caused by the lights going out. All right. But in this case, it was the traffic lights. Okay. You see what I'm saying? So so in a way, it kind of was right. But I get it, man. Who the hell's ever going to figure that out? You know what I mean? It, because as far as I know, nobody in Point Pleasant was walking around with a Mothman to English decoder ring stuck in their pocket, you know? And and if this stuff is interdimensional, well, who's to say, like, it, they weren't right, but it was like one reality over, and they just, you know, they got out too soon. You know what I mean? Like, they, they exited on the wrong floor. Which window, yeah. Well, that's kind of kind of where you always end up, you know? Uh, and it makes me think uh, uh, in the uh, Mothman legacy, which is a, a, a DVD a documentary by Small Town Monsters, uh, Richard Haddam, he's saying that, boy, when he first got into this, he was going to solve the mystery. Man, he was just going to tear it up and, and, and find out what was going on. And then like so many of us, he kind of hit the brick wall. And, you know, it's like Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée was originally an ET guy, wrote two great books, Challenge to Science and Anatomy of a Phenomenon. And then when he wrote Passport to Magonia, he starts off by saying, this is not a scientific book. And you can just kind of see the guy going like this, like, what the heck's going on? Keel also thought this was strictly E.T. in the beginning. But then when he, he saw all these, these patterns that show up, and that's that's the thing I'm most interested in. Are, and I think that when you uh, when you listen to the experiencers uh, that and, and don't uh, immediately reject the high strangeness aspects of their experience, you will you will find these patterns seem to, to fall into place. Back in the 1960s and in an early 70s, I was an ET guy. You know, these things are coming from other planets. Don't give me any moment. I don't want to hear mm -hmm. about ghosts or the paranormal or whatever. And then I read Strange Creatures from Time and Space, uh, also known as the Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings, that's when he starts to get into these ideas of windows, you know, trying to explain how these things seem to kind of phase in and phase out. Well, in the in the uh, Operation Trojan Horse, he takes it a step further and he, he makes it's like when Charles Fort said, you, be, you can begin to measure a circle anywhere. 
he really starts to show you how all these things seem to be connected and they're not all separate things cryptids ufos ghosts and so forth so i kind of came kicking and screaming and like i say i went to therapy i recovered and then i had to go into therapy again because i read uh passport to magonia by jacques Vallée. and jacques Vallée, uh that's where he uh talks about different traditions and folklore and makes uh connections with some ufo experiences like missing time for example uh, missing time was a big deal when you encountered the fairies uh they didn't necessarily give you an unscheduled medical examination but sometimes you ended up in a in a cavern or a cave or underground or something like that no thank you oh god yeah i'll just add that to the ever-growing list of things that i'm terrified of oh my god um now now steve just a quick question here now so we know that the mothman prophecies and that you know, the story always seems to culminate in the collapse of the Silver Bridge. My question is, did the sighting stop then, or did people just stop talking about it because they just didn't care anymore because of the tragedy that it had? I, I, I think that was it. I mean, there have been, in, in recent in, in, in years after that, uh, it would, would be sightings occasionally. But I, I think that people's attention was just off UFOs and the Mothman. I mean, it was, uh, uh, people had a lot to recover from after right. that. So um, uh, there, there may have been, uh, you know, the activity may have been as uh, it stayed at the same level, but nobody's reporting it. Um, and but people have seen something like that since then. Um, of course, they people go a little bit overboard. I think they uh, any any kind of winged creature or apparition is, is suddenly the Mothman and is suddenly the harbinger of, of doom. You know, I'm not sure that. Uh, that Mothman was a harbinger. I, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't know what the heck it was, but uh, a lot of credible people saw it and, uh, you know, reported uh, something similar. So do you think uh, the Mothman came to be known like how it is now because of the movie that was made? Do you think that really shot it to, to fame as a cryptid? Definitely. Uh, uh, at the, the small town monsters event, that we were mm -hmm. at not too long ago. Oh, Monster Fest, yeah. Yes, Richard Haddam was there, Yes, the screenwriter of the Mothman Prophecies. And I thought, how cool is that? That's pretty cool. He was very nice. Oh, yeah, he was. And uh, there's a great book written by Brent Raines. Brent Raines never met John Keel, but they talked on the phone often and corresponded. Uh, Brent Raines uh, still has a uh, an online uh, magazine called, I think it's Alternate Perceptions. He, he wrote a great book called John Keel, The Man the myths and the ongoing mysteries. Well, in there, he talks about how excited John Keel was when he read Richard Haddam's screenplay. I guess I guess people have been writing just utter crap, make, trying to make the Mothman into a monster, and Keel wasn't going to have any part of it. But he thought, you know, he said, uh, you know, they they've updated it and uh, they've got my you know, my character I married or, or whatever. But he said that that Haddam finally got some of the basic underlying truths, and he was. He was so happy, he was laughing. Now, Richard Haddam didn't know anything about this because he'd not read the book. So I was able to give him this information at that event. Oh, cool. He did tell Art Bell that he, he didn't, he said he liked the movie. And he said the thing the movie really got was the paranoia that he felt at that time. And if you remember, there's a chapter in the book called Paranoiacs Are Made, Not Born. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's toward the end of the book, yeah. For, for a long time. Uh, Keel was being forgotten about. And me, 
I was, <laughs> I, I was, uh, you know, knee deep in John Keel for years. He a lot of his books went went out of uh, print, and of course, a lot of the magazine articles we couldn't you couldn't find anymore at that time. Uh, and uh, and then in in two thousand and two, when the movie came out, uh, Keel, who hadn't done many interviews, he was on Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM, and Art Bell has said that he you know he, he didn't know much about the Mothman. I'm thinking Art Bell. You know, you're doing this paranormal show. You don't know. So uh, I was just been very happy that uh, there's been a lot of his works have been republished. And, uh, you know, he uh, there's a great uh, uh, if you guys are familiar with CBS Sunday morning, um, they have kind of a human interest piece at the end. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I got to see a tape of the the 2003 Mothman Festival. Bill Geist used to be the guy that would do the. Uh, uh, the the puff piece or whatever you want to call it. He was there at the 2003 Mothman Festival when uh, the Mothman statue was unveiled and John Keel is standing there in his white suit. Oh, God, it, it's so funny. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, uh, he it, he does. He, he was doing some serious interviewing and not belittling the people, you know, uh, and uh, you, you see him. He's out there in the uh, in the TNT area in the dark with a flashlight and a map. Now, there's a dog kennel back around there somewhere so you hear the dogs barking in the background and he says what are those dogs barking at so he was it was really quite funny uh the way that they they pulled it off and, and again you get to see the the unveiling of the mothman statue tell us about that famous statue and that shiny hiney <laughs> well um <laughs> it's a it's a very stylized representation of the mothman i would say uh, although Bob Roach did interview a lot of people about what they saw. And uh, he, uh, it's made out of stainless steel. It's, it's pretty incredible. He's done other statues of historical figures that you can see on the other side of the flood wall. And, and by the way, I live on the right side of the flood wall, just in case. Um, but he, what, what, I, what, what I do is when I, I'm, I'm there on Saturdays and I will uh, greet people and uh, we get into great conversations about this stuff if they're interested. And uh, I will go out to the statue often so that the people can uh, get their whole family in there in the picture. Mm -hmm. They don't have to send the, the kid out. They don't like to take the picture, you know, so <laughs> that's uh, nice of you. I, it's it's uh, it's, it's You're uh, saying. I'm doing I'm doing the Lord's work, I think. But then I'm really <laughs> doing the Lord's work when I ask them if they know the secret of the Mothman and I'll take them around to the back. And I don't know what possessed Bob Roach to do this. And I can't imagine anybody getting close enough to this thing to give that kind of description, but you will uh, gaze upon what they call the shiny hiney. And uh, people do all kinds of strange things back there. They will slide their charge card through there. I tell them, you better check your bill when you get home. Uh, they'll put quarters back there. They slap it and they do things I cannot say out loud or I'd be arrested. You'd have to edit it out. And, uh, and then when they do whatever they're gonna do, slap it or whatever, I'll point up to the there's on the second uh, second level, there is a uh, a mannequin dressed like a man in black, <laughs> which really freaks out a lot of people when they see it at first. But right next to that window is a our 24 seven moth cam. So I explained to them afterwards that, you know, <laughs> everyone all over the world on the Internet just saw you slap Mothman's caboose. So. <laughs> so you the set them up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And tell us about the museum. And you work there uh, part-time, right? Just, just on Saturdays. Um, 
I'll, I'll be there tomorrow. Uh, Jeff says he's having a, a group of about 30 students coming in. So, uh, you know, we, it'll be it'll be fun. Hopefully they're well behaved and respect their elders, damn it. But uh, it's, it's uh, Jeff started it in about 2006. It was in a smaller building across the street. It keeps expanding it. It has, uh, <clears throat> it has all kinds of uh, articles about uh, the, the Mothman, the Men in Black, the the, the bridge. Um, it has a lot of displays. It has uh, uh, things explaining, you know, who the Men in Black were. It has uh, it has John a, a glass case with John Keel's white suit in it, which is very cool. And it has uh, uh, five documentaries are running simultaneously. He has one uh, uh, really nice viewing room, and the others are just placed in different parts of the museum. And if you go all the way into the back, the Mothman Legacy is playing there. And if you wait long enough, you may see my handsome countenance uh, in there a few times. And uh, I, I always like it's, it's always fun to uh, walk back there once in a while when 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 I'm speaking on there. And I'll get somebody's attention and I'll say, look at that guy. You know, he's strikingly handsome, but so full of himself. And they uh, <laughs> do a double take and we have some fun. So do you give out autographs for free? You know what or do you charge? I I spoke uh, at this last festival about kind of a refresher on the Mothman and John Keel. And a young man came up afterwards and wanted me to sign his Mothman Prophecies book. Aw, <laughs> you so, made it. I guess. I, I, I used my real name that time. <laughs> All right, well, why don't you tell us where people can find you? Well, uh, you can go to Facebook, uh, type in Steve Ward. I think if you uh, also include Point Pleasant, you can probably find me. I, I don't, uh, I'm not classy enough to have a website. Uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't know how to run it anyway. And uh, I do a show called The High Strangeness Factor on the Paranormal UK radio network, along with Andy Mercer and uh, occasional uh, guest co-hosts like Brandy that we know from uh, Van Meter. Mm -hmm. I love her. And and uh, yeah, she's really good. And uh, um, there's about three or four years of shows back there. It was, but it was a hiatus for a while, but uh, uh, and we're going to be uh, going to be talking to Heather Moser coming up this week. Another Ooh. great person. Yeah. Oh, nice. So uh, and then also a correspondent i don't know why i'm called a correspondent but on on uh, mac maloney's military x files and uh that is also on the same network and many other platforms and it's uh as, as sam can tell you <clears throat> it's a it's a great show oh yeah that was a lot that was a lot of fun that was a good show <laughs> but you're also a co-author on the book the high strangeness. yes uh, mothman high strangeness um uh, mark randall is the uh, graphic artist and it covers the year of the Garuda. It covers the uh, uh, the between November and December of '66 and '67, uh, all the bizarre stuff that happened in Point Pleasant and the Ohio Valley. And uh, I, I've also contributed a couple chapters to uh, uh, different books on Big Surprise, The Mothman. You still might be able to find weird winged wonders out there, edited by Timothy Green Beckley. I mean, with some very good company like Brad Steiger. Scott Corrales and uh, Paul Eno, and uh, boy, the other other title I can't remember. It's a Mothman and uh, other winged creatures, or something like that. Uh, uh, edited by Chatan Noir, and so uh, and, and and allegedly, I'm I'm writing my own book. Uh, a few chapters oh. are partially done. Yeah, yeah, 
It's, uh, I tell people it will be out by the end of the decade. And I already have to also change one thing because uh, I found out the uh, one of the cases I cited was a hoax. <laughs> oh, <laughs> one no. Of those have been repeated forever, but turns out it was a hoax. So. Okay. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. This, is, this has been a lot of fun, man. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Good night. You know, that that's Steve Ward. That guy. My God. So knowledgeable. Like, I am shocked. I'm shocked that a man so wonderful mm-hmm. as Steve Ward did devote his life to a creature as terrible as the Mothman. I feel bad for him. Okay, put your beef aside with the Mothman. I will not. Yes. I will not. Do it. Look, I did while Steve was on here. He is not on here right now. And I will tell you right now, the Mothman is a dink. Okay. But I understand people like him. I understand Mm -hmm. they haven't met him. Okay. That's what I'm saying. I don't think he's as bad as you are making him sound. Have you met him? Have you have you met the Mothman? I have not met him. Exactly. But everyone loves him. Yeah, and people loved OJ Simpson too. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying. We celebrate him. We have Mothman ice cream and Mothman pizza. Yeah. Yeah, and people also celebrated the McRib. My point is people make mistakes, Laura. People make mistakes. Are you saying I made a mistake? In what? That you got the McRib or that you like Mothman? Because they're both equally heinous crimes against nature. I'm not admitting it. I'm asking you your opinion. Hey, I used to think the world of him too. And then I met him and I realized he is a colossal prick. So there you go. You are entitled to your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I respect that. Thank you. And I also respect your opinion, even though it is wrong, Mm -hmm. because he is a colossal dink. Well, I think, uh, I think we should agree to disagree. I feel like that in a way is me admitting I lost and I can't do that (laughs) because he is a prick a winged red-eyed dingus I appreciate that Sam thank you so you're allowed to make mistakes Laura like liking the Mothman (laughs) because he is a dink an entitled dink calm down All right. deep breath dink one more time. Deep breath. Ding dong. Big old dink. <laughs> Big old dink. Okay, there I'm done. All right, now I'm done. It's out. I got it out of my system. All right, jeez. Right, Can we just, okay. let's just go. You're making me uncomfortable. All right, all right. With all the talks of dinks. <laughs> Is all the dink talk making you uncomfortable? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't met him, okay, so I can't I can't judge. Yeah. Yeah, you can. <laughs> but I can. <laughs> Let's just roll credits and All get right, out of bye. here. You can find us at creepyacres.com and you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Also YouTube. And we're on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, which is now called X threads and we have merch at tpublic.com thanks for listening everybody and as always hey keep it creepy
Dink. <laughs> <laughs>